Public. Today I'm speaking with Lee Fong, an investigative journalist who specializes in exploring how public policy can be sculpted by special interest groups. We discussed the recent Weaponization Committee report covering CISA's censorship initiatives and Fong's reporting on the connection between Epstein and Stacey Plaskett. So I'm curious if you could explain what the Weaponization Committee report displays in terms of what new information that it provides um, that, you know, is different from what's been previously reported on. The new report from the Weaponization Committee does not provide a lot of new information. It looks like the committee staff subpoenaed some records from CISA, the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, But it is very interesting because it confirms a lot of previous reports, previous reporting that shows the evolution of the agency. Now, this is an agency a sub-agency of the Department of Homeland Security that was designed by legislators to respond to hacking threats on traditional critical infrastructure, pipelines, water utility, uh, power grids, that type of thing. Instead, this agency, CISA, evolved and kind of created its own mission of protecting election security. That's a designation that was essentially given by executive authority by the Obama administration as they were leaving office in 2017. Um, It confirms and and kind of shows the chronology of this mission creep that, that CISA uh, by designating elections as a form of critical infrastructure like pipelines or water that gave the agency the justification to work with the FBI and other uh, officials to pressure the social media companies to shape content decisions uh, around elections and around many other areas. Um, CISA officials have talked about, well, um, financial markets are critical infrastructure. Uh, The courts are critical infrastructure. Why not expand uh, the social media uh, censorship or effort to shape uh, conversations on social media around all kinds of uh, issues that affect daily life in America. And uh, this report just shows this this kind of creeping evolution where this agency, part of the Department of Homeland Security, created to stop another and prevent another 9-11, has now transformed to an agency that's um, pressuring Facebook and Twitter to delete uh, political tweets. So when you're talking about this mission creep, do you think that this is just an example of um, the government just trying to increasingly grab power? Or do they seem to have some sort of position that they're creeping towards intentionally, if that makes sense, like some sort of policy or or whatnot? Well, you know, uh, bureaucracies tend to be self-perpetuating. We see this in a number of areas. The military is certainly an example of this. It's very difficult to wind down major military programs, uh, to cancel or roll back major military conflicts. We see even with wars ending and, uh, you know, conflicts ending and winding down in Iraq and Afghanistan, these oversized military budgets seem to only grow and grow um, there's no peace dividend when these conflicts end. 
And the same seems to be the case with the Department of Homeland Security. This agency has grown and grown. And even as the threat from Islamic terrorism, from al-Qaeda or ISIS, uh, has radically waned in recent years, has gone down, uh, this agency needs to justify its, its existence. So it's searching for new threats, searching for new fears to tap into, um, coming up with new justifications for this enlarged bureaucracy and, and variety of government contractors. Um, it's shifting from protecting against uh, uh, overseas terror threats to now focusing on social media censorship. And that seems like a radical progression but it, it helps justify the the duration and expansion of these agencies. So in one email, Kate Starbird specifically said something like, unfortunately, current public discourse um, seems to accept that malinformation is speech um, with it protected within democratic norms. I'm curious if you think that people like Kate Starbird truly think that there is, there is a threat um, that, 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 that needs addressing um, or if there's some understanding or there's some concern regarding, uh-oh, like these ideas might, you know, we don't want the public to necessarily see how we're thinking about these things. I mean, this is a very dangerous form of government interference with political speech. There's misinformation, uh, disinformation, and malinformation. These are the kind of category areas that CISA and the Department of Homeland Security uh, created as as a you know, a rubric for interfering with social media discussions. Malinformation, it's not a colloquial term. I don't think I've ever heard it used outside of the bureaucratic setting. But it basically means true information that feeds a false narrative. And the malinformation that we've seen from a variety of government-funded think tanks and this universe around DHS um, are actually true information that feeds into often true narratives, but it's just narratives that the bureaucracy or, um, you know, political elites deem as unhelpful. And that's um, true information about the lab leak. Uh, when the lab leak theory around COVID-19 was seen as a false narrative or a racist narrative, um, it's it's true information perhaps around the war in Ukraine, but, it, you know, information that might not feed the pro-NATO, pro-Western uh, narrative. Um, this is kind of a categorical uh, form of, of government censorship. You know, we've, we saw, you know, really heavy handed government censorship in China and Thailand and in Russia and other countries uh, where they say that, you know, that any kind of true reporting is traitorous, is dangerous to the republic, it, you know, feeds into national security fears. And this is essentially a, 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 an American version of that, um, an American version of saying that, okay, this might be true information, journalistic information, a, a accurate observation, but it feeds into unhelpful narratives that, that help the enemy. Um, that's, that's kind of essentially a, an authoritarian argument in, in, in terms of suppressing speech. And we do see in the emails that, you know, I've, I've obtained emails from litigation, from records requests, from le various leaks and whistleblowers, and now from this report, and it just shows that, you know, even though officials that were leading this government uh, intervention realized that uh, malinformation was a very weak argument, they still pursued um, this effort in terms of their crackdown.
So do you think that they were deliberately trying to hide their work from the public, like, i.e. knowing that what they were doing was wrong to some extent? Because in one email, for instance, Susan Spaulding says something like, oh, it's only a matter of time before someone realizes we exist and starts asking questions about our work. Um, so I'm curious what your thoughts are regarding yeah, and that. That's, you know, you asked me initially about new information in the report. That's a new email to the best of my knowledge that, that hasn't been revealed yet. And it does show this trepidation or concern that journalists, that members of the public, that legislators would see that this was a government censorship effort and start asking questions and, and, and digging into this, you know, um, Last year, the Department of Homeland Security, a lot of the same officials involved with CISA, formed this disinformation governance board that received an immediate backlash, I think, given the kind of Orwellian title of, of the organization. Um, but what CISA was doing uh, a little bit more in the background was essentially the same work, um, deciding what content is appropriate and what is not, uh, working with uh, political actors and nonprofits to select Facebook posts and tweets uh, for censorship. And, you know, I, I have a number of emails. Some of them have, I've, I've published, some I have not, that shows similar kind of trepidation that members of the CISA advisory board were saying, hey, you know, we got to make sure we're not, quote unquote, socializing this information. Don't, don't talk to the press. Don't talk to your peers about this. You know, on the CISA website, they published a few of their, of their agenda items and their kind of um, meeting talking points um, from their uh, monthly meetings, but most of the of the meetings were not published initially. It took litigation and records requests and some of the Twitter files to force the disclosure to show that they were, you know, using the 2020 election as a test case and as, as an experiment for this government censorship effort. That they plan to expand this effort into a number of other areas to even um, look at talk radio, cable news other media sources uh, to apply this to areas, not just in terms of elections, like I said, in terms of the COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, and, and uh, racial justice narratives. I mean, these are all areas where there, there isn't settled fact. Uh, there isn't kind of um, one uh, narrative that all Americans can agree on. These, these are continually updated and contentious debates. It's not clear to me why the government should have any role in setting what the correct terms of the debate are for these very contentious political topics. So do you think that these, like, whether it be researchers or officials working within these pro-censorship groups, like specifically Kate Starbird, do you think that they had an awareness or a concern that this sort of information or their emails might become publicly available, um, like in the sense that they might be positioned in such a way or it might be difficult to ascertain, like, truly what was going on um, on a deeper research level? Or do you feel confident that um, ultimately the information is will be accessible um, completely and holistically through that avenue of exploration, like whether like the surfacing of these documents in their emails? No, we don't know the full picture yet. Um, I, I published a story a few weeks ago showing that when I started filing for records requests on this topic way back in the fall of last year, along with other reporters and oversight organizations, uh, the Department of Justice even stepped in and tried to block the release of these emails and at least delayed the release of those, those documents. 
Um, if those documents had come out earlier, they might have been impacted some of the congressional hearings we've had in the last few months. Uh, we, we don't know exactly what's been said in all these meetings. We don't know what's planned. You know, a lot of the documents that I used for my big story on this last October, you know, even before the Twitter files, that was in part uh, sourced from a whistleblower, also part sourced from the Missouri v. Biden litigation. You know, we're, get, we're getting all kinds of disclosures through uh, different avenues, whether that's the Twitter files, whether that's congressional hearings, whether it's through some, some other paths. Um, but we don't know the full picture. We know that it's not just CISA, that the Global Engagement Center, this um, unit within the State Department, engages in a very similar kind of apparatus to shape content decisions around social media. We know that the CDC and the White House Office of Public Affairs have interacted with uh, the social media giants. We even know that some state agencies outside of the federal government um, have pressured social media firms. And we do know that the FBI, acting in conjunction with other government agencies, but often acting solo, uh, you know, through the Foreign, uh, foreign Influence Task Force, has uh, shaped content decisions at a variety of social media firms. And, and overarching all, all of this, you know, we've had kind of a unusual kind of series of disclosures from Twitter, a, a focus on Twitter, but they're not the only social media platform under government pressure. Discord, Reddit, um, many of the other kind of big social media platforms, uh, social messaging platforms, uh, have also met with the government, complied with some of these orders. We just don't know, have as much disclosure. So there's still so many answers to be, so many questions to be answered. So why do you think that the Biden administration is protecting CISA? Like you've talked about instances of stalling specifically where we see that there's information waiting to be released. I'm curious why the administration would be interested in protecting the organization. And also if you're concerned that the upcoming election year will influence how information surfaces. Well, look, uh, the Biden administration is politically savvy. They understand that there's incredible power in shaping social media, but there's also, um, this is a politically precarious topic. Uh, censorship is not popular. It's not, um, you know, it's it, the potential for backlash is high. Uh, Republicans are now mobilized on this issue, but I think many Democrats and many independents are also concerned with this issue, with this issue. So they want to exert control without receiving any political comp consequences. So it's no wonder that their D Department of Justice intervened last fall and that they've been less than forthcoming in replying to some of these record requests and subpoena requests. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Publix Podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.